Welcome to this joint event organized by the uh, Middle East Institute and the American Jewish Com Com Committee. Uh, this is the, uh, a landmark event. It's the first one uh, that's been jointly organized between our two organizations. And, and though we wish we could have had it in uh, person, I was just telling Jason earlier that you know this is one of the benefits of COVID-19. It's presented us with a unique opportunity to reach an audience that we could not have had uh, if it were not a virtual event. So we're quite excited uh, about it. So uh, just a brief introduction for those who uh, may not be familiar with our work. Uh, MEI is an autonomous research institute within the uh, National University of Singapore. And it aims to further our understanding of the Middle East, particularly when it comes to ties with Asia. Now the AJC was founded in, uh, well, more than a century ago, 1906. You know, and it's uh, one of the oldest uh, Jewish advocacy groups in the world. It has been described as the uh, dean of American Jewish uh, organizations. So we're very honored to, to have, have uh, with us uh, today uh, Jason Isaacson, uh, who's AJC's chief policy and political affairs officer, and is, whose expertise in the Middle East has been built over 25 years or more. Jason has been a journalist and has served in senior staff positions in the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives among other roles. And uh, he's perfect to address the, uh, the question that many of us have been asking today, uh, all, all over the past month or so. Uh, the dynamics, what are the dynamics between the, behind the landmark signing of the uh, Abraham Accords and, and what or, or who might come next? Uh, so Jason, uh, over to you. Carl, thank you very much. It's, um, it's a pleasure to be with you and uh and your colleagues at the Middle East Institute. And I want to also salute my HAC colleague, Shira Lowenberg, who's the director of our Asia Pacific Institute. Um, this is a great opportunity for us. We really look forward to further collaboration with your institute uh, going forward. And, and you're right, uh, in this time of um, COVID-19 pandemic and lockdown and virtual reality that we're all experiencing and have been for the last almost seven months, um, it is so much easier to um, have regular consultations with, uh, with colleagues around the world, counterparts around the world. And we look forward to building on that in this strange time that we're all in and after this strange time when we can actually meet in person in Singapore and the United States, um, maybe in the Middle East. Um, so let me try to speak to this very broad, hugely broad topic um, in, a short while, maybe a half an hour, if that. Um, and then I really look forward to engaging uh, participants in this in, in a real conversation. But, but just working from a, a title of Israel's relationship with the Arab world, um, I think it's important to kind of very cold, uh, with a very cold-eyed um, assessment, um, see where it was and where it is and where I hope it's going. Um, and where it was, was pretty miserable. Um, it's, it's been a history for decades of, uh, of conflict, of animosity, of mistrust, um, efforts in multilateral forums to um, criticize Israel, to lead resolutions against Israel, wars against Israel, of course, um, the Israel Independence War from 1948 to 1949, when five Arab armies uh, attacked the uh, nation state of Israel, and um, as well as armies from two other Arab states, 
uh, rather forces from two other Arab states in addition to Iraq and Egypt and Transjordan and Syria and Lebanon. Um, then, um, of course, there was the Suez crisis in, in uh, 1956 and the 1967 Six-Day War, the 1973 war. Um, there was a war of attrition uh, as well. Um, many thousands of lives lost on both sides um, throughout this dark period. Um, and then um, some really dramatic breakthroughs. Uh, there was, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, after the first Gulf War, um, where the United States emerged as a unifying force and the sole superpower in the world and international politics was changing rapidly and aligning rapidly in the direction of um, listening to Washington and maybe fearing Washington. And we had a president and a secretary of state who wanted to seize that opportunity that was created by the, these dynamic changes in, in Europe and in international relations, the end of the Cold War, um, the defeat of, uh, of, of, of uh, or rather the pushback of Iraqi forces from Kuwait um, and convened in, in Madrid in October of 1991, the Madrid Peace Conference, which was the first real effort um, I would say after the Camp David Accords, after the Egyptian-Israeli Peace Treaty of 1979, um, the first real effort to take as many states as possible in the region, plus the Palestinian Liberation, or Palestine Liberation Organization, and put them in a room with Israeli diplomats and see if they could chart a way forward. Um, I myself had recently come to HAC. I came, I, I came to the, this organization as Director of Government and International Affairs, as my title then maintained, in July of 1991. But in October of 91, three months later, the Madrid Conference was convened. I attended that on, on behalf of HAC. And, and that charted a way forward uh, for Israel and its neighbors to begin talking about some issues and to, again, bring up the possibility of um, having a relationship between Israel and the PLO. The, the, the breaking of the ice between Israel and the PLO was quite significant and it occurred in that context. Uh, and then it was just a few months after that in January of 1992 that the second phase of Middle East peacemaking was launched in the multilateral process that created separate working groups to focus on specific issues in, in the region, uh, the issue of water resources, the issue of arms control, um, issue of the environment in general, um, other key specific issues that could be attacked by, by policy experts in addition to diplomats um, and try to reach some understandings in the region to lessen tensions, to build trust, to set the stage for agreements, agreements between Israel and the Palestinians, agreements between Israel and Arab states in general. Um, and, and, and out of that um, hopeful start in 91 and then early 92, uh, I also attended the Moscow launch of the transatlantic, of the multilateral process in, uh, in January of 92 on behalf of HAC. Um, out of that, those two landmark events in 91 and 92 came a period of several years of probing and, and, and testing of possibilities and convening of regional conferences to focus on specific issues. Um, and it was a hopeful time. Um, Israelis meeting with Arabs 
uh, not necessarily resolving the Israeli-Palestinian issue, but, but, but focusing on regional issues in general. Um, it was in, um, in 1996 that, uh, rather in 1994, that uh, an AJC delegation uh, that I participated in uh, went to Saudi Arabia to have some discussions in 1995. Um, another delegation that I put together went to Bahrain and Oman and, um, and Qatar. Um, but, but in addition to the activity of, of my non-governmental organization, there, was, there, were, there were a lot of discussions that were taking place. Um, and, and you had then in, um, of course, the Jordanian-Israeli peace talks that had a, an initial agreement in 1993 after the landmark Oslo agreement uh, between Israelis and Palestinians that was negotiated secretly in Oslo throughout 1993 and then was um, signed at the White House in the fall of that year. Um, at the same time, there was a, an initial Jordan-Israel agreement in, in fall of 93 that resulted in the fall of 94, the finalization of Israeli-Jordanian peace. Um, you had, after, after those agreements um, between Israelis and Palestinians, between Israel and Jordan, um, out of this hopeful period, um, four Arab states um, reached not full diplomatic relations with Israel, but low-level relations, establishing interest offices or trade offices, um, Oman, Qatar, Morocco, and Tunisia. So that by the mid-1990s, uh, and for a period that lasted for about five years, you had Israel in relationships with uh, half a dozen Arab states, um, full relations with Egypt and Jordan, lower-level relations with four other states. Um, it was also in that hopeful period that, that AJC's um, efforts to attempt bridge building, to attempt further contact, to widening our network, to encouraging a different attitude toward Jews, um, a, a relieving the people of the region who had for so long been indoctrinated uh, with a notion of um, sort of pernicious Jews and, 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 and Jews who were aggressive and were trying to seize their land and were, were, were occupying the Palestinians, not because they were forced to do so, because they had been beating back an invasion on their, on, in, 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 against Israel, but, but because they wanted to somehow willfully control the Palestinian population as opposed to just having to have to be there because they defeated a, a Jordanian army. Um, lots of misperceptions about Israel, lots of misperceptions about Jews, and we spent years trying to establish contacts and trying to relieve people of these, of these false notions about Jewish intentions and, and, and Israel's intentions and try to make certain connections. Um, and then you had, of course, the um, attempt um, in the last uh, year of the, um, or near the last year of the, of the, of the it was the last year of the, um, of the Clinton uh, administration, um, an effort to uh, resolve issues again at Camp David, um, which came to naught in the year 2000, um, in the summer of, of 2000. Um, and then you had the outbreak of the Second Intifada uh, in October of 2000. And with the outbreak of the Second Intifada of October of 2000, um, you had um, kind of a, a crushing realization in Israel that um, 
peace with the Palestinians was not going to be around the corner as they had been hoping. After all, the Oslo Accord of 1993 and then the second Oslo Accord of 1995 all were predicated on the notion of a five-year uh, transition to full Palestinian control in a, in a, in a, in a, in a Palestinian state. Um, these, the area A, B, and C, all of the various mechanisms that were created for the Palestinian Authority were all supposed to be transitional notions. Um, but, um, but with the failure of uh, the Camp David negotiations in 2000, the outbreak of the, of the Intifada in, two, in October 2000, um, Arafat's clear intentions to try to stir up uh, his population, um, not satisfied with an agreement that would require the compromises that would have been required under Camp David. So he would not get the 100% of the West Bank that um, he had been promising his population they would get, but instead it would be something in the 92 or 3 or 4% range. Um, rather than getting full control of Jerusalem, it would be a very different kind of a, uh, of a sharing. Um, Palestinian leadership was not prepared to, to, to sell that compromise. The Palestinian leadership um, decided to reject it, and you had the outbreak of the Second Intifada. On the outbreak of the Second Intifada in October of 2000, the four states that had for some four or five years established low-level relations with Israel canceled those relations. And so you had the withdrawal of Israeli envoys from Muscat and Tunis and Rabat and Doha, except Qatar, although they said in October of 2000 that they were canceling their relationship with Israel. They didn't quite cancel it. They didn't quite close the Israeli office there. It took another few months for them to do so. But essentially, you had those four states walking away from, from, from agreements. And really, from October of 2000 until quite recently, um, there were not these formal relationships of any kind that existed between Israel and Arab states with the exception of Jordan and Egypt. And I would say with the partial exception of Oman, because the Sultanate of Oman um, had been uh, charged, uh, volunteered actually, to take on the chairmanship of the water resources working group created in the multilateral process that began in the beginning of, of 1992. And, and as the chair of the multilateral working group on water, um, Oman hosted something called the Middle East Desalination Research Center, um, which for a while was just a, a villa in Muscat uh, where there were some researchers and some bureaucrats who would use a certain amount of funding that was uh, derived from the various states that were party to the Middle East Desalination Research Center board. Uh, and they would distribute funds for research on desalination and other water management uh, technology. Uh, they would they would fund that research and then they would distribute they would share that research with uh, the various parties, um, including Israel, including the Palestinian Authority, including Jordan, um, and uh, and then ultimately after it was just a villa for a while without any real machinery, uh, the government of of, of Oman um, found space on the coast in Muscat and built a building. Um, and, and set up real offices and actually a, a whole test uh, system of desalination. So there's a, a model desalination um, system that's in place in this building in, in Muscat where you can train uh, in desalination technique and the most advanced desalination technique. And it's used for training PA, PA Water Authority and Jordanians and Israelis and others 
um, a lot of Israeli expertise that con that's contributed to this, but not only Israeli. Uh, there are European partners, Japan, the United States, Korea are all partner, partner, partners, um, uh, members of the board of the uh, Middle East Desalination Research Center. But except for Egypt and Jordan with full relations and Muscat, which had this entity, Oman, which had, which had this entity that was a regional cooperation project, um, and that required an Israeli diplomat or two and an Israeli water expert or two to visit Oman with their Israeli diplomatic passports, uh, maybe twice a year. Other than that, there were not formal relations of any kind between Israel and, uh, and neighboring Arab states. Um, and it took years um, to encourage and to facilitate uh, those sorts of contacts. Um, I, in my capacity as uh, Director of Government and International Affairs of AJC and as a regular visitor to these countries, would do everything I could along with uh, my colleagues to encourage contact and to introduce people to each other, maybe on the phone or by email, um, and try to set up meetings in New York or in Europe uh, between Israeli and, uh, and local officials. Obviously, the American uh, embassies in these countries uh, did what they could as well to push forward. And in New York, on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly every fall, there would be meetings that would take place in, a, in, in quiet hotel rooms between Israeli and, uh, and Arab diplomats uh, from countries that did not recognize Israel. Um, but it was all kept very hush-hush. Um, it was really, I would say, more than a decade of really this kind of quiet uh, interaction with um, intelligence services talking to each other and sharing information. And I know something a little bit more about that. Um, certain intelligence services in a few Arab countries that were in regular contact with their Israeli counterparts. Um, and there was one particular Israeli diplomat whom I've known for more than 25 years who was regularly in the region, um, someone who had an American passport because uh, this individual had been born in the United States and had made Aliyah, which means he had gone up to, to, to become a citizen of Israel um, and, uh, and, would, and would travel in the region and, and, and try to open certain doors. But, uh, but it was all very secret, uh, very quiet, uh, and, and, and only of limited um, function, limited utility, frankly such missed opportunities through so many years, it started to change. Um, in 2016, um, Israel reached a, uh, an agreement to sell natural gas to Jordan. Um, it was a, a $10 billion agreement, um, the details of which were kept quiet for some three years uh, because of the intense anti-Israel sentiment in Jordan. Um, and, and by the way, since 1994, uh, when Israel and Jordan signed uh, their peace agreement, uh, the level of contact between Israelis and Jordanians was appallingly little, uh, appallingly low. Um, there was government-to-government -government contact. There was very significant and hugely important um, security cooperation. Um, it's often been said that Israel was really the air force of Jordan in some ways, would protect Jordan against uh, incursions from other states. But, um, but business contact was uh, almost non-existent. Um, and there were 
fierce anti-normalization efforts underway in Jordan uh, at the popular level, the grassroots level, non-governmental organizations of various kinds, but, but also in the Jordanian parliament. Um, so striking this deal to provide Israeli natural gas to Jordan after the very significant Israeli natural gas fines in the, uh, under the Eastern Mediterranean, um, it was important to keep it quiet. Um, and, and when it became public, uh, it was fiercely opposed in the Jordanian parliament. For years, it was hugely controversial. Um, but that was in 2016. In 2018, you had this sort of cascading series of, of, of events. I, I should say, though, I should interrupt myself and say that, because um, there are a whole, thing, a whole bunch of things that happened in 2018. But, but before that, let's say earlier in that, in that decade, the last decade, um, you would have the occasional very brave although why it should be considered brave is beyond me, very brave statements by um, at least one particular Arab diplomat whom I, about whom I wrote just a, a column just a couple of weeks ago, um, Sheikh Khalid al-Khalifa, the Sheikh Khalid bin Ahmed al-Khalifa, who was at the time and for almost 15 years the foreign minister of the Kingdom of Bahrain um, in New York. Um, this is now maybe 10 years ago, eight years ago. I remember him uh, making a statement in the UN General Assembly about Israel being a part of the region, that it should be somehow included in a, a regional uh, sort of stabilization uh, accord um, along with Turkey, along with Iran, um, all the Arab states. That was regarded as a really ice-breaking, path-breaking statement. Um, the um, uh, but other than that kind of statement, and there was a column that was written by the Crown Prince of, uh, of Bahrain as well, uh, roughly that time, five, six years ago, um, that also alluded to a future in which Israel would, um, would, would work with its neighbors. And every now and then you would have some other commentator look ahead down the road after Israeli-Palestinian peace to the possibility of cooperation with Israel. Um, but that's really where it all sat, nowhere, essentially, um, until uh, 2018, when you had um, both um, Israel and Egypt agreeing to a very substantial natural gas deal, $15 billion natural gas deal, um, which was also controversial in Egypt, not to the same degree that it was in Jordan. And very significantly in October of 2018, um, this, the now late, the then Sultan of, of, of Oman, uh, Sultan Qaboos, um, invited Prime Minister Netanyahu to, uh, to Muscat. So Oman, a country that had not ever had full diplomatic relations with Israel, had for a period of half a decade, low level relations with Israel, had maintained support for the Middle East Desalination Research Center and so had contact with Israelis and also had had some quiet security cooperation with Israel at various points over the years. But, but, but the Sultan quite bravely um, broke the ice and, um, and, and invited Netanyahu to, to visit him in Muscat with his wife and with a small team, his national security advisor and, and, and the head of Mossad. Um, and, and there was video on that that was played all over the world and um, especially in the region. Um, did not, because the, the Sultan was held in such high esteem, did not cause the kind of reaction that um, it might have caused in a different country in the region. Um, elder statesmen, obviously, uh, 
at that point served for 46 or 47 years as Sultan. Um, but it was, uh, it was huge. Uh, and then I guess two days after Netanyahu left uh, Muscat, the minister responsible for foreign affairs, which they never called the foreign minister, they called at that time the minister responsible for foreign affairs of Oman, Yusuf Ben Alawi, was attending, speaking um, at a conference in, uh, in Bahrain, the Manama Dialogue, um, a conference that I've attended every year for a number of years. And I was in the audience of strategic affairs experts and diplomats when Ben Alawi was on the stage and talked about uh, the visit of Netanyahu that had just happened. And I was recognized to, to ask a question of Ben Alawi, whom I've known for years. And I, I, I asked him to please explain what, what it means and what, how do you build from this visit by the Israeli prime minister to your country? And what does it mean for regional peace and for your own country's peace with Israel going forward? Um, and Ben Alawi quite strikingly and more openly than ever in the past, spoke about Israel uh, as being a state in the region um, that, should be, that should have the rights and obligations of any state in the region. Um, and that frankly, it had been a mistake for the Arab world to pretend that Israel wasn't there. Um, and a lot of missed opportunities had occurred because of that. And this was a very dramatic statement by Ben Alawi. And it was also within that same period in the fall of, two, of, of 2018 that you had two Israeli ministers visiting the United Arab Emirates, one uh, to, uh, to observe a, a judo competition, an international judo competition in which an Israeli athlete won a, a gold medal in, uh, in, his, in his category. And the Israeli national anthem, Hatikva, was played in, this, in the stadium in, uh, in, in the UAE. And the minister presented the gold medal to the uh, Israeli athlete. Um, you had another Israeli minister attend a, a telecommunications conference uh, in, in the UAE. You had a, um, a, a conference on cybersecurity that was being planned in Bahrain, and an invitation was extended to an Israeli official to come to Bahrain. Um, this was all happening in late 2018 um, on into early 2019. And then you had you had in, in 2019, the, um, the Peace to Prosperity uh, Conference, the workshop convened in Bahrain um, by the United States, uh, by the Trump administration, by, by the Jared Kushner team that was working on plans to break the logjam in Israeli-Palestinian peace and go about it with two parallel uh, tracks, one on the, on, the, on the financial side and, and one on the political side. And the, the, the decision was to roll out the financial package before they rolled out the political package um, to offer kind of an inducement to, uh, to the Palestinians to come back into a political process um, by showing them what they would gain, what the region would gain uh, if they were to move forward on, uh, on, on, on the administration's plans for Israeli-Palestinian peace. And that took place in June of 2019 in Bahrain. The Palestinian leadership boycotted uh, and made it clear that they were unhappy with anyone else going, but other countries did go. Um, uh, but Palestinian businessmen were advised not to go. Uh, Israeli business people came. Um, Israeli journalists came. Um, the Israeli government was, because the Palestinians weren't going to be there, was told not to come. Um, but that was, 
hugely significant to have um, Emirati and Bahraini and other officials from, from the region, along with American and European um, uh, diplomats and IMF representatives and others, uh, discuss a future in which the, um, all the states would contribute to Israeli-Palestinian peace and would benefit from their own individual relationships with Israel as well. Um, that, that was another breakthrough um, where you had Israeli journalists sitting down with, with my friend Sheikh Khaled, the then foreign minister of Bahrain, and having him directly talk to the Israeli people uh, in ways that hadn't happened before about the importance of moving forward toward peace with the Palestinians, but also the, the importance or rather the possibility of expanded re of real relations between Israel and, and Arab states. Um, and that brings us to um, really the end of, of, of last year and the beginning of this year. Um, you had in January uh, of this year, January 28th, uh, President Trump um, marching into the East Room of the White House with Prime Minister Netanyahu by his side and, and laying out the political side of the peace to prosperity, vision for peace, um, uh, Israeli-Palestinian peace package that they had been preparing, which um, offered a, a shrunken future Palestinian state um, uh, with kind of a Swiss cheese effect of uh, every Israeli settlement even very remote ones, deep in Palestinian uh, territory, um, connected by roads and bridges and tunnels to, uh, to the state of Israel. Um, no Israeli having to leave uh, any of the settlements, even the most remote. Um, and no Palestinians having to leave their homes either. And it was all going to be a very complicated infrastructure project, multi-billion dollar um, effort to create roads and bridges and tunnels to link everybody together. Um, but a, a strange um, map that uh, that was that was that was put forward that would include um, some thirty percent of the of the West Bank, including the Jordan River Valley, um, being brought under Israeli sovereignty, therefore taken out of the negotiations between Israelis and Palestinians for a future Palestinian state. Um, Palestinians obviously rejected that part of the plan, um, but several Arab states. Um, for reasons of uh, wanting to stay on the side of the United States and for reasons of being fed up with Palestinian leadership. And I'd heard that again and again in my frequent visits to Arab capitals over decades, um, uh, really frustrated with a Palestinian lack of, uh, of pragmatism and corruption. Um, but you had, of course, the ambassadors to Washington of Oman and Bahrain and the UAE attending this, this uh, rollout in, in the White House. Um, and other Arab states, Morocco, Egypt, um, saying positive things about this going forward, not accepting it as presented the American plan, but um, but wanting to give it the you know time to uh, to, to be studied and uh, and perhaps being used as a basis for negotiations. Um, and it was it was it was in that plan. It was the the American offer, the American. Uh, promise by President Trump to go along with the notion that had been floated during uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu's campaign for re-election over the course of the previous year. You know, there were three elections in Israel over the course of some, I don't know, 14 months or so. Um, but a promise by the, by the Prime Minister uh, to annex, to actually put under Israeli sovereignty this large swath of the West Bank, 
and it was President Trump in, 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 in this plan that was rolled out at the end of January who said that if that's what happens, Israel, the United States would recognize Israel's sovereignty over, over that land. Um, it, was, it was that offer by the United States that hung out there uh, for months and provided a key that could unlock some of the stalemate that we've uh, been suffering for so long, because it was that offer, um, that threat, you might say, to so cripple the possibility of moving forward in any kind of logical, smooth way toward Israeli-Palestinian peace, that Yusuf al-Otaiba, the Emirati ambassador to Washington, um, seized on to, um, to make an offer, um, which he did in June of, um, of this year, in an op-ed that he wrote in Yediot Ahronot, a Hebrew language newspaper in Israel, in which he said that the UAE is prepared to move forward toward peace with Israel, but this application of Israeli sovereignty, this annexation of, Israel, of, of Palestinian land um, would make it impossible to move forward. Um, it, it, was, it was an unprecedented appeal um, by a senior Emirati or a senior Arab, uh, senior Gulf official to the Israeli public um, for peace, for true peace. And, and, and while it was startling to see it in print, it was not so surprising for a few of us because I had been in Abu Dhabi the previous December, December of last year with an AJC delegation meeting with a number of Emirati officials, including Sheikh Abdullah Bin Zayed, the uh, al Khan, the foreign minister of the UAE, um, who said to me in, uh, in front of a, a dozen AJC board members, um, when I asked about a plan that had been floating last year, was floated by the Israeli foreign minister at the time, Israel Katz, and, and also by the National Security Council in, in Washington, the idea of, okay, we can't reach real peace with our neighbors because they're not ready for it and because they insist on the Palestinian issue being resolved first. And so let's propose a halfway step and that halfway step would be non-belligerency agreements between Israel and some key Arab states, including Morocco, including Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, maybe the Saudis, um, maybe other states as well, um, maybe Oman. This idea had been kicking around. Uh, the National Security Council had convened some Arab ambassadors in Washington to talk about this. They had all kind of politely said that they would study it and talk to their capitals and it was not going anywhere. And so I asked the foreign minister of, of the UAE last December, what do you think? I mean, would, would your country accept such a, such a plan? And, and he turned to me and said, you know, why are you aiming so low? Why do you just want a non-belligerency agreement? We want something more substantial. We're ready for peace with Israel, but there are certain conditions that have to be met. Um, but that was a private conversation. It wasn't a public conversation. So seeing um, uh, Yusuf al-Otaiba, the ambassador, um, say this in public to, to Israel in June of this year was dramatic. Um, and it followed just by a couple of weeks, um, a, a webinar that AJC had hosted. Uh, we've been We've had some 200 webinars over the last six and a half, almost seven months now. But one of them was with the UAE ambassador to the UN in May of this year, just, just a month before Otaiba published his article. And, 
And Ambassador Lana Naseba, the UAE ambassador to the UN, who was, by the way, of um, a Jerusalem Palestinian uh, heritage, um, she talked openly to our audience about uh, the possibility of, of, of public health cooperation, of, of cooperation in the time of the pandemic with Israel. Um, but it was a little tentative, but it was clear that they've been thinking and starting to prepare their public for the notion of cooperation with Israel. Um, around the same time that Otaiba had his article in Yidiyat Akronot, Dr. Anmar Gargash, the Minister of State for Foreign Affairs of the UAE, um, on another HAC webinar during our global forum in June of this year, um, also spoke a little more expansively about cooperation with Israel. Again, saying, we're not talking about the Palestinian issue. We want the Palestinian issue to move forward. We want there to be an independent Palestinian state. Um, but we also recognize that there are gains to be had by all of our people uh, if we can have a relationship with Israel. And so we're, you know, we're looking for ways to have some sort of cooperation. But, um, but not as explicitly as Otaiba in his offer of moving forward toward peace um, in return for Israel taking annexation off the table, not going ahead with annexation. Um, and that is ultimately uh, the deal that uh, resulted in the announcement of August 13th when President Trump and, um, and uh, Crown Prince uh, Mohammed bin Zayed uh, of, uh, of the UAE and Prime Minister Netanyahu announced that they were moving toward full diplomatic relations between the UAE and, and Israel. And then it was just um, a few weeks later, September 11th, that you had the announcement of Bahrain and Israel establishing full relations. Um, so after many years of quiet contact, um, some security cooperation, um, some, um, uh, some trade, I was told at one point, now this goes back seven or eight or nine years ago, uh, that there was even a billion dollars of trade between Israel and the collection of Arab states all through third countries, um, nothing labeled with made in Israel um, uh, stamped on its side, but, um, but there was com some commercial activity, but all done very quietly uh, and, with, and, with, and with various hoops that had to be jumped through. But that, that is now so far in the past and the past is receding quite quickly as um, I think it was two days after the announcement on August 13th of Israeli UAE peace, you had an agreement reached between two Israeli firms and an Emirati firm for cooperation against the pandemic. Um, you've now had uh, an MOU on uh, artificial intelligence that's been signed. You have other agreements that are, that are in the works. Um, uh, an Israeli soccer player is going to be joining a team in the Emirates. Um, there has already been, of course, that one famous direct flight uh, on El Al to, um, from, from, from Tel Aviv to... Uh, uh, to Abu Dhabi, um, but there will be much more. Uh, in the coming days and weeks, you'll see um, an agreement on, on, on commercial aviation. You'll have uh, the fast processing of visas. Um, it, will, it will be a dramatic change. It will be full relations and very warmly embraced by the Emiratis in a way that never was warmly embraced in Jordan or Egypt. Um, uh, big differences, of course, uh, no Emirati ever um, spilled blood uh, because of uh, a conflict with, with Israel. Um, they were not involved in any of the Arab-Israeli wars. 
Um, they have been supporters of the Palestinian cause and they've invested hundreds of millions of dollars in, uh, in Palestinian relief over the years. Um, they're not held in such high regard by the Palestinians these days. Um, similarly, the Bahrainis. Um, but let me talk about the possibility of Israeli-Palestinian peace and where we go from here. Because I really do think, um, as I and colleagues have been saying uh, for decades in Arab capitals, that reaching out to Israel can help the Palestinians, that isolating Israel did nothing to help the Palestinians. Um, if the whole premise since Oslo um, had been that we would attack, we would solve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, after which, uh, and this of course is in line with the, uh, uh, the Arab uh, uh, Peace Initiative, um, 2002, that, uh, that, 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 that after the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is resolved to the satisfaction of the Palestinians, and that really means return of, uh, of, of, of Palestinian land to the 67 lines, um, uh, East Jerusalem as its capital, um, return of refugees, all these other conditions that are decreasingly possible with each passing year and now really totally beyond, uh, beyond reach. Um, but, but that was the line, that until that happened, no Arab state would, would engage Israel. This goes back to the Khartoum three no's of the late 60s. Um, uh, that had been, the, the, the region had been stuck in, 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 in this trench for, for, for so long. Um, but, but, um, but by flipping it around, as we've been saying to Arab governments for many years, and by engaging Israel, not isolating Israel, not pretending that Israel isn't there, or is going to go, go away somehow. But by engaging Israel, you will lower the level of mistrust that Israelis have for their neighbors. You will raise the, 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 the possibility of, um, you will encourage people to take risks. You will, you will, you will lessen the, 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 the risk factor for Israel um, by re in reaching out to, to the Arab world. If the Arab world reaches back to Israel, um, encouraging compromise, encouraging risk-taking, encouraging bravery. Um, and at the same time, you will be able to be on the Palestinian side in trying to influence Israeli decision-making. Um, so, so why are you resisting the possibility of putting yourself in that influential position? Um, I believe that finally this lesson, this, this message um, took hold. And, I, and now you, you are now hearing from some Arab leaders um, very encouraging signs that, uh, that they would like to use their newfound position in reaching out to Israel and establishing relations with Israel to help move the Israelis uh, in a direction that will more easily accommodate peace with the Palestinians and, and maybe, maybe encourage Israelis to kind of lower their guard a little bit in dealing with the Palestinians. And that's, that's, that's a fine thing. And if that's the message that the Palestinians can take as opposed to continual rejection um, and, and obstruction and criticism of Arab states that are doing the right thing for their own people and for regional stability and security, um, I'm hoping that that is the lesson that Palestinian leadership will take. I'm not sure that they are taking that lesson. I'm not sure that President Abbas, who is now in the uh, 14th or 15th year of his four-year term, um, and it's not quite clear what his succession is. Uh, it's not quite clear what the rest of the senior leadership of the Palestinian um, uh, Authority is uh, where they're going. Um, they don't seem to be 
accommodating themselves to this new reality where their their prospects of getting everything are shrinking by the moment. Um, their prospect of getting something even reasonable is becoming more difficult. Uh, and it really is time for them to get to the bargaining table. Now, let me just look ahead very quickly and then I'd like to uh, ask for, for, for questions in a conversation. Um, there's been a lot of talk about where we go from here and what other states might be in line to follow the path of the UAE and Bahrain. Um, and then there's also been a lot of hype about this. And some of this, I must say, comes from Israel, uh, where there are very enthusiastic uh, political figures and journalists who will seize on any prospect of um, momentum and make a story out of it. And then everyone has to react to that story. Um, so there was, a, there was a big to-do a couple of weeks ago about the possibility that, and I think President Trump even, even contributed to this, that there would shortly be direct um, flights, uh, commercial flights between Israel and Morocco um, the Moroccans quickly put out that's quickly, you know, poured water on that story. Um, that's not happening anytime soon. There was a very active anti-normalization uh, movement in Morocco. At the same time, there's a great deal of pragmatism in Morocco and moderation and, of, um, and, 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 a, and a, rec a recognition of the fact that Morocco um, is the birthplace of many hundreds of thousands of Israelis. I remember my first meeting with, um, with the king of Morocco, um, where he spoke of um, his 600,000 subjects in Israel, um, and, which was startling to hear. Um, but, um, but it's the case. If, um, if, 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 um, if, if, if Moroccans remember the fact that, they're, that, that Jews were among them and that they have real connections to Israel, um, it, it encourages a, a, a more pragmatic, more moderate approach. Um, so I think, I think the possibility of Israeli-Moroccan peace is definitely on the horizon, but it's, it's not happening overnight. And uh, the president was wrong to push that, that line. And, and, uh, and I, I, whoever in Israel uh, helped sort of put that out um, and then fanned that flame in, in, in the White House, uh, made a mistake. Um, but other countries, are, I think, are closer. I think the Sultan of Oman, um, after a short while, will probably move in that direction. As I said, there's already a history of Omani-Israeli contact. Um, the Omanis are a peace-loving people and um, good interlocutors with, um, with, with their neighbors, um, get along with most of their neighbors, um, are quite determined to do that. Uh, and um, and I, I think that it's, it's, not so, it's not so hard to imagine that happening in the coming months. The new sultan has been in office for less than a year. Uh, unlikely that, uh, that such a bold step would be taken very soon, but, but it's certainly foreseeable. You've read clearly about uh, what's going on between the United States and Sudan and Sudan and Israel. Um, some of us in HSC were privileged to have a meeting with the prime minister of, of Sudan. It's in a trans transitional government, but this was last September in New York. And we heard from him directly, although I know he has, there are some people within his um, the civil uh, coalition that, uh, that is part of the sovereignty council that is now governing Sudan, who are not keen to move forward uh, on relations with Israel, but, but the prime minister himself uh, was committed to that at that time when we spoke with him in September. And, and, uh, and the general who is in charge has already met with Netanyahu in Uganda last year. Uh, and is is or earlier this year, excuse me, and is and and is is, is moving in the direction of uh, of establishing relations with Israel. And 
obviously the 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 um, removal of Sudan from the U.S. state sponsors of terrorism list is a, a an element of such a deal, even though the Sudanese are saying that this would be uh, these would be separate understandings between the United States and Sudan, and and between possibly Sudan and Israel. Um, they don't want to join these issues, but they are joined um, for every practical in every practical sense. Um, but I think Sudan also recognizes the benefits of having a relationship with Israel. There was a relationship uh, many many years ago. Um, there have been there there have been or I should say there, there there was a Jewish community in Sudan many years ago and and there has been contact between Sudan and Israel uh, and there are real possibilities there um, and other countries um, probably not Tunisia anytime soon Qatar which has had a relationship with Israel in the late 90s as I said and still works with Israel and uh, relief for the human for the for the Palestinians in Gaza uh, is probably in that lineup um, other countries not so clear. The Saudis, um, the big prize, obviously in the Arab world, um, until uh, King Salman uh, turns over the throne to uh, Mohammed bin Salman, um, it's not clear that's going to happen very soon. But should that occur um, in the coming years, um, given the signals that have been provided already by uh, by the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, it's it's uh, it's easy to imagine as the Saudis moving in that direction as well. Um, and, and so I, I, I do expect that before very long, and some of this may depend on what happens in the US election, um, there are lots of other factors that will play in. Uh, you will have um, wider peace between Israel and the Arab world. And I hope that wider peace will lead to also a resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So not that conflict resolved before the wider Arab-Israeli relations, but, but as a result of and in, in coordination with uh, wider Arab-Israeli relations. And I think the final thing that I should say is there are many reasons why um, Arab countries want to have a relationship with Israel. Uh, there is, uh, of course, Israel's reputation as the startup nation, as a great innovator, um, uh, great entrepreneurial expertise, um, enormous pools of um, human capital that can that can be applied to resolve many problems that the region has, whether it's water resources or renewable energy or medical technologies, um, training in a variety of fields, uh, other agricultural uh, technologies that Israel has perfected um, from seeds to cattle management and everything else, uh, which is world-class in Israel, cybersecurity. Then there's the security dimension, um, which is another aspect of the of the, the benefit of a relationship with Israel. And, and whether the United States changes hands in the US election and you have a president who is not as committed as this president is to this project of establishing broader Arab-Israeli peace, but you have a, a president with perhaps a different agenda or a less aggressive agenda on this front, um, either way, I think you will have um, many in the region recognizing that there are enormous benefits to a relationship with Israel and, and, and putting aside the questions that will continue to hang over U.S. policy, whether under the current administration or under a different administration uh, going forward. Um, having a relationship with Israel can, can guard against uncertainty from Washington, um, can provide uh, more of a security, if not umbrella, because Israel while powerful for its size, is not big enough to be an umbrella for the region. It can be an important partner, a very, a very capable and willing um, 
a skillful partner in the region uh, for security against Iranian threats, against the threat of extremism in general. So for protective reasons, for um, the seizing of, of opportunities uh, on the business side, uh, um, on agriculture, on the environment, uh, on public health, on a whole range of sectors, um, this, this is the direction that the region is going. And, and with increasing support from the region's young, um, who recognize the, um, don't have the same uh, stigma about Israel necessarily, um, of being exposed to the, the wider world through the internet and through um, news media. Um, some of them reaching out to Israelis as well. There's a, even a flourishing of interest in the Hebrew language and, Hebrew and, and Israeli culture. Um, and a certain admiration for, um, for the advances that Israel has been able to make, a country that is not so different from their own, but has achieved so much more in so many ways. Um, and I think a desire to get a piece of that and to, and to partner with Israel. So I think at that point, I'll, at this point, I'll stop and I'd be really happy to engage um, this, um, this, this assembly in, uh, in your questions. Carl? Thanks, Jason. Uh, we have a lot of questions, I think. <laughs> but uh, let me just set the ground rules for those. Uh, so if you want to uh, ask questions, you can do it two ways. You can use the uh, raise hand function and then we'll, uh, we'll hand you over and you can turn on your, your, your camera and identify yourself. Or you can also uh, you know, type a question to us using the chat function and, and we'll, uh, I'll read it out to, to Jason. Uh, so, so let's 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 keep going on that. Uh, maybe I'll start, uh, Jason. I, I I'm not sure whether uh, you meant it. You seem to hint uh, that if there was a change in leadership uh, come November third, uh, you know, uh, Biden might probably not be so engaged in this project. Uh, did I read you wrong, or is, is did you you know? Could you elaborate on that? No, you didn't read me wrong, um, and I think this will be part of the topic for my talk with you next week as well. Um, I, I don't believe that Biden has the same obsession with this uh, issue that uh, the President Trump and Jared Kushner and, uh, and, and their team have. Um, I, I give the current administration a great deal of credit for, um, for so single-mindedly trying to expand the circle of Arab-Israeli peace. Now, it's true that their effort to do so um, or rather their effort to resolve the Israeli-Palestinian conflict um, hasn't come to much. Uh, it is true that their maximum pressure campaign against Iran um, has produced questionable results. One could say that eventually maybe they will produce the results that they want. It's not quite so clear. The um, Having pulled out of the JCPOA, um, the Iranians are now building their stockpile of enriched uranium and um, not ceasing and they're uh, attacks uh, in the region, uh, their aggression in, in, in Syria, um, their arming of the Hezbollah in, 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 in Lebanon, um, attacks on Saudi airfield, on Saudi uh, oil facilities and tankers in the Gulf, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I'm not sure that that aspect of, of Trump administration Middle East policy has played out so successfully. Um, but while the Palestinian approach and the Iranian approach you know, are really uncertain. The approach to the wider Arab world um, has been successful. Um, the administration has, has built up a lot of IOUs in the Arab world, 
for its um, aggressive stance against Iran, whether it produces the results that we all want, it's not clear. It's not clear there's going to be a, a second round of U.S.-Iranian negotiations that will produce the results that, uh, that, that the Trump administration is, is seeking. But, um, but that belligerence by the United States toward their common enemy has, um, has, has earned this country uh, credit in, in, Arab, in, in Gulf, Sunni Gulf capitals. Um, so it's a combination of that. It's a combination of, uh, of a, uh, I, I, an, an ability, um, a willingness, an ability to, to, to make certain trades, certain um, um, transactional deals with, with these Arab states that will push forward toward peace with Israel that, uh, that has helped kind of juice this process along. I don't know that a, that a Biden administration would have that same single-minded um, approach. I'm not sure that, um, I, don't think this, I don't think the process would stop because I think it's, it's got its own internal momentum. Um, there are good enough reasons for Arab states to move forward toward peace with Israel. Um, common enemy and shared opportunities and the fact that the ice has already been broken by the UAE and Oman. Um, and there have, been, there have been enough positive signals already. Um, so I don't see Biden stopping that, but I don't see him putting the same level of energy into it that this administration has, as it has single-mindedly, it seems, um, sought these kinds of successes, um, wanting to show success, um, and maybe even with with greater intensity because of the disaster of the pandemic and the recession that the United States is now facing, needing to show progress, uh, real success someplace else. Great, thanks. Well, of course, there's the, 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 the other bit is that the uh, second term is usually about legacy building and, uh, you know, if, if Trump comes away with something like this, it, it, you know, he'll cement his place in history in a positive way for once. So I just, I just want to take you out of the, the, the Gulf for a little bit, because this is something that, you know, we, we are also very interested in, uh, you know, in, in our part of the world. You know, but, uh, you know, how much will the Palestinian, well, the Palestinian issue seems to be receding among Arabs. How much do you think it is receding among Muslims in general? You know, because uh, we've got two large Muslim populations uh, on either side of us, Indonesia and Malaysia. So we are very interested in, how they will see it. Thus far, Malaysia has been, you know, a non-committal been against the deal. Uh, Indonesia has been uh, a little quiet. So I know it's outside of the of, of the Gulf, but uh, maybe you can share your thoughts on that first, as Muslims in general. Yeah, I think uh, sure. Um, it's complicated, obviously, um, and there are things that are said uh, more privately than uh, than, than publicly. HSC recently had a, a high-level meeting uh, with an Indonesian official. I don't want to be too, um, I can't reveal what happened in that off-the-record conversation. Um, Shira Lowenberg may wish or may, may not wish to be, to be more open about it. Um, but we have reason to believe that, uh, that, that they're watching uh, and that there already is some quiet engagement, of course, with Israel. And that's been going on for years. Um, we've been doing what we could to encourage that as well over the years. Um, but, um, but it is, uh, it, it, it is, I don't, I don't see the likelihood of, um, of a breakthrough necessarily anytime very soon, but, but the, all the elements are there. Um, the, the advantages are increasingly apparent to, to wise leadership across the, the Muslim world, 
Um, there are a number of Muslim majority states that already have relations and are developing relations with Israel. Um, and the benefits to be gained from that are, are, are so substantial that if, um, if these countries can figure out how to um, address the non-governmental organizations that, uh, and, and political parties that uh, will stir up populations and, uh, and cause uh, trouble because of, of openings toward Israel, um, if they can find a way to, to resolve that domestic issue, I, I think the, the wiser heads in leadership across the region, across the, excuse me, across the Muslim world, um, see, see the direction this thing, this, this should go. That Israel is not, you know, a huge power, but it is a, a very significant player uh, in a number of, of key sectors. It's, it is a, a world leader in a number of key sectors. It could be enormously advantageous to, uh, to, to, to states across, across the region. If, if Israel has already contributed significantly toward um, uh, irrigation uh, technology in India, um, why can it not also do the same in Muslim majority states elsewhere in Asia? Um, it, 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 it provides agricultural technology to states across Africa, um, including states with significant Muslim populations. Why should, why should the people in these regions not benefit from uh, a closer relationship, a, a real normal relationship with Israel? Um, and, and, and I'm hoping that the, the, the iron grip that the um, adherence to the Israeli-Palestinian first argument um, is, is, is I'm, I'm hoping that it's lessening. It seems to have lessened, seems to have loosened, I should say, in, in parts of the Gulf and in other states. And I'm hoping that that, uh, that concept spreads more widely. Great, well, thanks. Uh, question. Um, you, you, you hinted at this, uh, uh, you talked about it a little bit, uh, but uh, you know, this, this seems different. You know, it's, it's not Egypt, Jordan. You know, this is, uh, that, that's a cold piece. This one seems to have a lot of possibilities and you talked about travel and things like that. Uh, you know, do you see like tourism you know, uh, booming, you know, business booming? You know, and uh, crucially, what about that F-35 deal? Well, that's a tough one. Um, let me start with the tourism and just uh, the sort of warmth of the of the of the of the welcome of this of this agreement uh, on Rosh Hashanah. So two weeks ago, um, the Khalij Times, which is a daily newspaper in um, in in the UAE, published a Rosh Hashanah insert, <laughs> a supplement, a Rosh Hashanah supplement to the to the daily newspaper in um, in the UAE. Um, also two weeks ago, um, I had, uh, I've been taking part every, every Friday for the last four or five months in a, a Zoom um, religious service from the UAE, the Jewish community of the Emirates, which is an expatriate community, um, has a very active uh, organization. And, and they have, a, they have a, a rabbi from New York who comes from time to time to the UAE. Uh, and uh, and we've taken part in these in these calls, and there are you know, sometimes 150 people on these calls from the UAE, but also from the United States and elsewhere. And two weeks ago, which was Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year holiday, um, Ambassador Alo Taiba, the Emirati ambassador to Washington, was on that was on that call. Um, uh, the fact that you have an, an ambassador of an Arab country 
taking part in, in this kind of a Jewish religious service. Um, and you have a newspaper publishing this welcome. And you had a year ago, a year and a half ago now, um, a big picture book published in the UAE, Celebrating Tolerance, it was called. And, and in the top left corner on the cover of the book was a picture of Ross Creel, who's the president of the UAE Jewish community, um, wearing a prayer shawl and, um, um, and just there was a whole chapter on, on, on the Jewish community of the Emirates and this welcoming, this celebration of the Jewish presence combined with the warm welcome that an Israeli team just got there, that, that was just there a, a few days ago that they received. Um, the columns that have appeared in, Emirati, in Israeli newspapers by Emirati officials, not just the ambassador to Washington, but other ministers as well. Um, speaks to some very different dynamic than uh, than whatever existed with, between Israel and Egypt or Jordan. I'm hoping that it rubs off on these other countries as well. I think we'll see the same thing in Bahrain, um, and I'm hoping it'll 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 take place in other countries. Uh, the, you talk about the F-35 deal, so um, it has always been clear, and it was clear in the meeting that we had with uh, Sheikh Abdullah, the Foreign Minister of of the UAE, last December, that um, part of the, the package that he would hope for in establishing full peace with Israel was um, a reassessment of uh, the application of uh, an American law that requires that the United States not provide weapons to um, uh, the Arab world uh, that would threaten Israel. Um, in a significant way. It's called uh, the maintenance of Israel's qualitative military edge, QME. Um, and therefore, a variety of very sophisticated weapon systems um, have been denied uh, Arab states that have, um, that, have, that have attempted to buy them. And that when, when certain very sophisticated um, weaponry, um, missiles, drones, um, jet aircraft were provided, uh, sometimes the versions that were provided to Arab states that were sold to Arab states uh, were modified in ways that uh, would reduce the threat to Israel. And it was clear that the UAE um, wanted to, um, to, to be in a, very, in, in a very different category in uh, the possibility of obtaining the most advanced American uh, equipment, and that includes the F-35E uh, fighter jet. Um, there have been discussions between Emirati and, and American officials and Emirati and Israeli officials. And you saw, of course, Carl, the, um, the Prime Minister of Israel say that he hadn't approved the, a sale of uh, the F-35 from, from the U.S. To, to, to the UAE. It's not really an Israeli decision to approve or not approve such a sale. It's an American decision. Um, it's, it's a decision by the administration um, that then submits that decision to Congress, and they have a limited period of time to nullify that decision if they can, and they seldom do. Um, but, but there will be a great deal of interest in, in Israel's um, either formal or more likely informal uh, acquiescence or concurrence in, in this. And, and the assurances that, that I've been given, uh, but we'll continue to closely watch this, um, are that, that, that such a sale would not compromise Israel's QME. Um, for a number of reasons that have to do with either the volume of the sale or the particular version of the plane that, uh, that the UAE gets, um, or the fact that because it takes years for such sales to actually 
materialize. I mean, you know, you don't just, you don't buy an F-35 from an F-35 showroom. Um, it takes, you know, Lockheed Martin many years to put them together. Um, and five years, maybe, or six years or seven years, uh, in which time Israeli defense technology is not standing still and may have various countermeasures to, um, to offset any advantages that would be, uh, that would be gained by um, by the new buyer. So um, this is an issue that we're watching closely and certainly Israeli defense planners are watching it closely. Um, and there are very, very savvy American defense uh, officials and uh, National Security Council folks, including one I was on a Zoom call with uh, last night um, from the NSC who deals with defense issues, um, who are very much on top of this issue. So it's, it's moving forward. Um, the, the decision has not been finalized um, in the administration, but the, but the president has indicated that uh, he wants to move in that direction. Um, and there's a lot of consultation with Israelis uh, as, as, uh, as this possibly materializes. Great. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, a couple of questions from some of my colleagues, but before that, I, I, Shira, I see you there. So if you want to you know, jump in on the Indonesia thing, Please, uh, please do so. But uh, James, uh, I see your hand raised. So uh, you want to go ahead? Sure. In fact, um, good morning. I wanted to follow up on the Indonesia uh, aspect of this, and particularly, um, Jason, if you could comment a little bit when you have a relationship with. <laughs> in fact, if I'm not incorrect, it was an AG, AJC invitation and sponsoring that led to the visit by uh, uh, Yahya Staku about two years ago to Israel. And you've had the visit yes. before that of Abdul Rahim Wahid to Israel. Uh, and, and you obviously also taking a bit of a different approach from others in terms of where it's going with its, uh, its definition of Islam, its what it, uh, uh, what it calls recontextualization, and in that context also relation with other religious communities. Um, and I wonder whether you could talk a little bit about that and your perspective on that. Um, well, thank you for that question, James. Um, yes, we have had um, contact, including, um, um, I don't think that this was made public, so I'm a little bit shy about talking very much about it, but a year ago we had a delegation uh, of Indonesians uh, very senior individuals, um, including a former very senior official of the government uh, in Washington. And we had some talks um, with some folks in Capitol Hill and in the administration. Um, and, and yes, I recognize that there's a, there's a very different um, way of thinking uh, by many in, um, in, in elite circles in Indonesia about uh, the possibility of a relationship with Israel. Um, and, um, and we encourage that. I don't know that I can say very much more now, but um, uh, but I do also recall uh, a visit to Jakarta that um, um, my boss David Harris and I made many years ago, and, and, and meeting with President Wahid, and, and of course, yes, President Wahid's um, address to an HAC Global Forum in Washington as well. So um, we do have a, a history with Indonesia. Uh, we want to expand on that. We see real possibilities. Uh, it's obviously a hugely important country. Um, complicated country, but, uh, but I think the possibilities are quite significant and we will do what we can to um, capitalize on those. Um, 
and and if sure wants to say anything more she's welcome to or um, we could just leave it as vague as that uh, james you have a follow-on question or will that do for you um no i think i'll leave it at this because because obviously uh demonstrates of what jason feels he can say and cannot say on this issue okay uh alex alex you have a question you go ahead uh, thank you very much for your presentation. Uh, basically, Carl, uh, you, you asked my question about the F-35. Uh, okay. uh, basically, if we want to talk a little bit more about uh, QME, uh, you mentioned at the end of your presentation uh, that Israel can be an important security partner. Uh, in this respect, how yes. Israel is going to balance uh, being a security partner and maintaining Israel military age? Uh, on this, I'm not referring to F-35, but most important to drones. UAE, Saudi Arabia have been looking to arm a drone like the Reaper, uh, the armed version of Predator for a while. But even Heron drone, the drone made in Israel, are extremely capable and, and efficient. So in this respect, uh, how do you feel that Israel will have a trajectory in being a security partner and at the same time maintaining the essential military edge? Thank you very much. Thank you, Alex. Um, very interesting question. I've actually, I've been meeting to, to, to speak about the, the Iron Dome issue with Israeli officials and whether um, there was any possibility that, uh, that that technology could be shared with, uh, with their new Gulf partners. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that that is possible because um, as I understand it, uh, the Iron Dome is, um, was, was an Israeli effort, but there's an American contribution to that effort as well. Um, and I'm not sure how uh, prepared the United States is to, to have Iron Domes deployed when, when there's a, as you know, a competing American product uh, that would uh, uh, that would uh, would disadvantage American manufacturers. So there may be many issues that Israelis are dealing with right now that they never had before, um, in terms of trying to sell some of their um, best assets uh, in the in the Gulf. Um, but uh, but there are there are other products that Israel has made, uh, other sophisticated. Uh, uh, whether drones or, or missiles of various kinds that uh, that are really desirable. Uh, and, uh, and I know there have been discussions over the years, even before there was formal peace between Israel and, uh, and these two Gulf states about the possibility of transferring of selling some of that uh, technology. So I think it's a, it's a big market, but, but, but there will be American concerns, um, whether um, missile technology control regime concerns or just simply uh, market concerns. Um, but I know that, uh, that that the Israeli defense industry is um, is looking for uh, for other customers, um, and they sell a lot in other places, uh, including India, um, and and they would very much like to, uh, to 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 have some new markets in the Gulf. Um, uh, that's about the best that I can do to answer that question. Um, I realize that uh, uh, that that there are um, there are desires on the part of the UAE and other states, the Saudis to obtain um, uh, certain sophisticated drones that, that would, um, maybe I'll just stop there actually, because th we do start getting into QME questions and, um, and I think I've answered that. So if you, you'll permit me just to, to, to leave it at that, Alex. All right, thanks, thanks Jason. Uh, 
I have a few more questions from uh, my colleagues. Uh, these are from uh, Tatiana. There are two questions. I think I'll read them both out and you can take them in home. First is that, uh, you know, some talk that, you know, uh, well, some, some people say that Pal Palestine is a problem for Israel more than for the Arab countries, you know, because uh, it might have significant implications on the future nature and identity of Israel. Now, is a dichotomy that is often drawn between Israel, the democracy, and Israel as a Jewish state valid? How do you see Israel's future? That's the first question. Uh, do you want to take that first, or should I get to the second question as well? Uh, no, no, sure. Let's, particularly as it gets late for me here, I think being able to retain more than one question at a time is going to be difficult. So, okay. <laughs> you'll permit me, Carl. <laughs> Go ahead, sure, sure. Sorry I about think, that. I think, I think, no, 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 it's okay. It's, it's nobody's fault. It's the time zones. Um, yeah, you're right, I think. Um, uh, the, um, the, the lack of a resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict poses a significant uh, challenge to Israel, uh, the future of, of, of Israel um, as a Jewish and democratic state. Um, if, the, if, if a two-state solution becomes increasingly difficult um, and support grows somehow for a one-state solution, which would not be a solution, um, what will happen to the millions of Palestinians who are living there? Uh, will they become Israeli citizens? Will they become, will they be somehow set, set apart from, from Israel and, uh, and continue to be stateless, um, but under the control of another authority? Um, and how acceptable is that uh, to a democratic society? Um, that was never set up to be an occupying power, but ended up in that position because of the war in 67, um, and would like to get out of that business. Um, so, so yes, there is a danger in, in perpetuating this, um, uh, the status quo. Um, the status quo can be maintained, but it's increasingly dangerous, uh, particularly as, as support erodes for, um, for a, a true two-state solution. As, as uh, Palestinian leadership continues to resist the possibility of introducing compromise and pragmatism, um, it becomes difficult. And, as, and there are hardliners in Israel as well. I, I don't say that they're blameless, um, but we need statesmanship, we need leadership, we need, we need realism. Um, that's been a too short a supply. But yes, that, I, I agree with, with your premise that this is a danger down the road for Israel if, uh, if there is not progress toward a two-state solution. Um, what is your next question? It relates to uh, something that you mentioned. Uh, it's just essentially Qatar. You, you talked about Qatar being, you know, possibly one of the uh, one of the countries that could, you know, down the road uh, normalize. But uh, you know, there's this big problem, the GCC crisis. So the question from uh, Tatiana is: Do you see Israel playing a bridging role in the crisis? You know, seeing that it now appears to be to both sides. Could be interesting. Israel's interest to do that? I, it's an interesting proposition. I, I don't see it happening. Um, I think that um, Israel is not all powerful and I think it has it, it has it has a bandwidth and it's it's it does quite well in its bandwidth, um, surprisingly well maybe. Um, I don't know that they are capable of resolving a conflict over Gulf power um, and and Gulf ego and um, and also the Qatar is an interesting country. Uh, it of course hosts uh, you know a huge American air base. Um, United States has very strong interests in Qatar um, and gets a lot of support from Qatar. 
Um, and there was talk about making Qatar a non-NATO ally uh, in the visit by the, um, uh, by the Qataris to Washington just um, was a week and a half ago or so. Um, but Qatar also uh, is um, in a very close relationship with Hamas. Uh, Qatar is in a close relationship with Turkey and, and, and Iran. The relationship with Iran is in, by, by necessity because they share a gas field, but there's also been a good deal of consultation. It's not quite clear to what degree Qatar is um, kind of ideologically um, opposed to um, its neighbors and, and also ideologically at odds with uh, Israeli policy, or to what degree it's just opportunistic. Um, it's, always un, it's always uncertain with Qatar. Um, as I said earlier, uh, Qatar and Israel do have um, a, a relationship in regarding aid to the Palestinians in Gaza. Um, and there has been, you know, continuing uh, low level contact, certainly. But whether Israel could kind of step out of its um, traditional role in the region and somehow help facilitate the um, breakdown of that uh, fracture in the, um, in the Arab world, this, the, the, the Arab quartet versus Qatar. I think that's asking a lot. I, I, by the way, I've, I've gotten zero signal from any of the contact, any of the discussions that I've had with the officials in those Arab states that are opposed to Qatar and with Qatar um, over the three years or so of this uh, of this relationship, or this 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 fracture, that anyone was willing to budge very much. Um, they seem to be quite set in their ways and and willing to withstand this. Uh, status quo, which is um, shocking because it's obviously hugely disadvantageous to the regional economy and to the possibility of you know, kind of uh, a, a common defense architecture that the United States has been w eager to push forward. So um, I, 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 everyone wants to solve this problem. The United States has obviously expended some energy, but not very much. The Kuwaitis did for a little while. The Omanis did for a little while. Um, I don't expect Israel to take that, uh, to take that job on. Great, thanks. Uh, well, in the interest of your well-being, I think we'll take just one last question. Uh, Clemens, <laughs> uh, another colleague of mine. Yeah. Certainly. Uh, Clemens, go ahead. Hi, Jason. Thanks for your talk. And uh, I'd like to ask a question about um, Saudi Arabia. Um, and of course, uh, as the custodian of the two holy mosques, they, they would be less inclined to follow in the footsteps of the UAE. But how far can the Saudis go in terms of their relationship with Israel? Thanks. Well, thank you for your question, Clemens. Yes, exactly. As the custodian of the two holy mosques, I realize that um, abiding by the age-old um, kind of understanding between the monarchy and the religious authorities, um, there's a limit to how far the, the government is likely to go. Um, at the same time, um, under Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, there has been real pushback against the religious authorities. They have taken dozens of, of clerics uh, you know, out of action. Um, the, the Crown Prince, when he was in New York a couple of years ago, spoke openly and was interviewed by the Atlantic Magazine about Israel's place in the region. Sometimes it's been, I think the, the, some of the words that he used um, may have been exaggerated somewhat in, in, in their constant retelling by various people over the last couple of years. But, but he made it clear that, uh, that there is no direct conflict between um, Saudi Arabia and Israel. 
um, and a desire to see a, a future in which uh, in, in, in which all the states in the region would uh, would be able to work together and and that Israel had a right to defend itself. Um, so you take those statements um, and 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 you also factor in the defense of the Palestinian cause that that King Solomon has identified as a priority and so that when you would when, when it wasn't long after uh, crown the crown prince returned to Riyadh that you had the king convene a I think it was a, a, a it was supposed to be a Jeddah summit and it became the Jerusalem summit um, just to, to further put the Saudi stamp on the Palestinian cause but but when that reality changes when you have a change of leadership in Saudi Arabia um, given the predisposition of, of the crown prince uh, from the statements that he's made um, privately in some rooms that some of us have been in and 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 more publicly I think it's fair to say that that's the direction that they, they'd like to go whether it's going to happen right away I don't think so earlier this year <coughs> Mohammed Alisa the head of the Muslim World League was in the HSC office oh no, no I'm sorry it was last year that he was in the HSC office and we signed a, an MOU between HAC and the Muslim World League um, to that that included Mohammed uh, Alisa um, going to Auschwitz with our CEO and, uh, and, a, and an HAC delegation in January of this year, um, where you had an agreement by Mohammed Alisa to, to, to address the HAC Global Forum, which he did in June, um, and, and to find other ways to kind of open up dialogue between the Jewish world and, the, and, and Saudi Arabia. Um, that's one part of the puzzle. Um, you had MBS, saying what he has said and continuing to believe that there's a place for Israel in the future of Saudi Arabia. Um, you have Saudi Arabia's vision, was it Vision 2030 or something that envisions um, this very high-tech city that there has been talk would have an Israeli component, uh, uh, some, some participation in the, in, in, the, in the technological aspect of this. Um, so a lot of hints that have been given over the last couple of years that that's the direction that they would like to go. Um, some pushback from the current king, but I think the future is, uh, is, 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 is full of promise. Thank, thanks, Jason. Uh, well, you know, I, I really can't wait to meet you in person and talk about all these uh, little rooms that you've been in. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> uh, thank, thank you so much for, for taking a large chunk of your evening and, and spending some time with us. Uh, thanks to AJC, thanks to Shira for organizing this, and, and, and thanks to everybody for, uh, for tuning in. Uh, don't forget, we've got, J uh, we've got Jason for one, one more talk, that's next week, and this will be on the US presidential election, something that you, we, we, we talk, touched on briefly, and that's on the 7th. So uh, tune in then. Jason, thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your night, and uh, have a good weekend ahead. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to that. And uh, and again, I want to thank my colleague Sheryl Lohenberg and, and Dylan Edelman, um, who have uh, helped create this opportunity for us. But uh, look forward to, to next week and, uh, and a future of collaboration with the Middle East Institute. Thank you, Carl. Thank you all. Yes, take care. Bye-bye. Good night. Good morning.